So you go down this cliff, go left down the cliff, yeah. left, and then just tumble for a while, and then you should be there. My truth is the <laughs> truth that you will never understand. Private ownership is one single individual giving green light. Doesn't that tell you that your system is more akin to authoritarian dictatorship? It's no editing! is a D. How come he can buy our house with our house and we live there? Just when these American citizens needed their rights the most, their government took them away. The rights aren't rights if someone can take them away. They have every man in a straitjacket. To leave a country is like breaking out of jail. And to enter a country is like going through the eye of a needle. I don't know if you've noticed, but our two-party system is a bowl of shit looking in the mirror at itself. Shout out! Revolution! Shout out! Revolution! Enough is enough! The poor must rise up! Police Academy essentially opens up policing to the citizens. It's a pretty anarchic idea for an 80s movie. Not only go on strike, but we need to fire the bosses. This whole you getting paid more doing less work thing, it's, it's not working out, Steve. Okay, that should be enough hang time. This is Dan Platt live back in the st- live in the studio. This is the Three Life Show, everybody. Thank you for your time and patience. Uh, this program covers news issues and anything of interest, though not really news, but getting to that uh, issues of anything or anything of my interest from a radical and revolutionary left perspective for the curious or the committed, promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy and a commons economy. It's a platform, folks. Discussing the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself and for itself. That means strategy. A meeting point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology. That's philosophy. We provide, we proudly wave the flags of the three lefts. So, I don't know if it's going to be at the end of the year. I think the goal is the end of the year. So I'm going to wind through a lot of stories... But basically, they're still going to be themed, of course. I am an organized man. Um, but what is not organized is set date for when I would transition my show from being a two-hour live radio program to one hour. And Because I'm getting the itch. I'm feeling a pressure, an internal, maybe external mental pressure, that I've been doing this show long enough, as it currently is, for four years. Um, or Yeah, four years. And... I'm reaching the end of new topics, starting to repeat myself. I've noticed in the last six months I've been saying more often, check back to this previous episode I did where I discussed this. Now I'm just expanding on it. Now, of course, I can just keep expanding on things I've already covered, things I've talked about. You know, I'm getting into the Dan Carlin. I don't know if you know that is. He was an old podcaster, might be still around, need to check in. Most famous for hardcore history one of the top podcasts on iTunes ever. And so sort of a mainstream force. But uh, he stopped doing his podcast because he admitted that he had uh, he had run out of things to say, that he had nothing new to contribute. Now, of course, I have, I feel like I, of course, I'm, I'm still contributing. I still have lots to contribute, in fact. But in order to do so, I need to shift priorities. One is that I've been working full-time, and I started this show when I wasn't. So I do not like having to spend two of my evenings editing this show. Cutting that in half would be nice. Two, I want to shift to local stories. 
there is not enough local stuff to talk about to fill two hours. Now, I could, maybe if I had, uh, if I was here with a roundtable, which could happen, but even if I did have guests and f interviews, an hour-long show is a better format for that. Not having to fill a whole hour or worry about, oh, I'll have a guest for half of the show, and then I'll talk about X, the other half. There just isn't enough uh, week to week, but I'm confident I could fill a weekly show with local stuff. But I want to switch to local stuff, regional stuff, just as an understanding, maybe because, you know, talking about running for office, but it's also a reaction, just as I started this program as a reaction to the itch to start a podcast, and then I ran for office, and I realized that there wasn't enough leftist voices in the area, but people are not can listen to me, but they're listening to me because it's a leftist program, not a local program that, where, that just happens to be hosted by a communist, because that's kind of where I actually want to be, the local news program that's an actual communist, uh, so people know what a leftist sounds like, and that we're not scary. We actually do want to help people. We aren't dictators. I just saw a, a little, a, you know, a little exchange on Facebook, not between two people on Facebook, but someone relating that a co-worker of theirs was like, I'm tired of this communistic dictatorship, you know, referring to our local government or the, the national government, I guess. And he's like, you know, suppressing the urge to say, oh, what you want is a dictatorship of the proletariat then? <laughs> but he said like, uh, well, it sounds like you want a dictatorship of workers or at least somewhat uh, more balanced political process, right? And he's like, yeah, anything would be better than this communistic uh, dictatorship. <laughs> now, there's two reactions you can have to that. One, correct the person, which is kind of my philosophy, which is to say, well, it's actually ca a capitalist dictatorship. It's capitalist. I don't know what, what's communist about Biden or Democrats. There aren't. They're not communist. Uh, I don't know what you've been told. I don't know what you believe in this uh, set, but which is usually where the argument goes. Like, no, no, they are communists. And you say, like, well, you ask, why are they communists? And it's like, well, because uh, they believe in race theory or whatever. And it's like, Jesus Christ. But what do you do with that? But I, I'm not for doing the opposite, which is to say, like, well, okay, Let's rebrand socialism as super capitalism. You know, if they think that what we have is a communist dictatorship or it's lefties out of the problem, then I guess we need to rebrand as being uh, not communist. <laughs> but still do the same thing we always do. Now we're just populists or something more neutral sounding kind of thing. But branding is not everything. Content is what matters. And uh, eventually, you know, you start talking about common ownership. I think uh, people are going to get wise and like, wait, is this communist stuff? I'm like, yeah, but it will actually save you money. It will actually help you. It actually gets the, the corporate power uh, dogs off your back and, uh, not, and gets you out of debt. You know, that's what we're offering. That's what that's what this movement political side is offering. And it's better than any anything that you've known uh, to offer. I can't really do that to a local population. Most of my listeners, as far as I can tell, are local. So I might as well just expand on that and not just keep trying to find some national audience because that was never the plan. And I'm just ranting because, uh, but, you know, I've seen, I've been reacquainted or at least, you know, since I started my own show, I stopped listening to all the podcasts I used to or checking in with them. And I noticed they're doing the same content I'm doing. Right? Yeah, I'm doing it differently. You know, I'm doing it by reading articles and essays in full. But uh, in, in some ways, it's less fun than what they're doing. And uh, I mean, for the listener, not me. It's always fun for me. But I'm starting to have less fun because I'm, I'm running out of new, like, interesting things to read. I mean, 
you can never run out, but like, and then, but my list is starting to dwindle. I've started to notice that I haven't replenished it with new things because maybe the algorithm just uh, sucks now and my Facebook feed isn't showing me interesting articles anymore or it's the same articles. And it's like, well, this isn't really new information for me. It's not, I like reading things that are new for me. I like learning along with you because that's the whole point. Because otherwise, every podcast, it's like the reason I don't listen to them is because I'm not learning anything new. But that was four years ago. And now the conversation has kind of changed a little bit. And there are even even more shows, more online stuff to listen, to talk to that talks of national strat and left just left the strategy, the co-op question. I thought I thought debating co-op question was something only like someone like me with some mixed tendency would do. Now I'm seeing other people do it or maybe because they're a mixed tendency too which is actually increasing a little bit. I'm starting to meet more guys like me, which is nice. Anyway, I'm running out of, I'm, 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 uh, I'm burning time. So I'm going to cover, these are all what the next few stories all have in common is that they're related to social issues. This, that's what this episode is going to be about. No title in mind. But the first half is going to be PG-13, at least because it's referring to sex slash um, and so on things, but in the context of labor issues and uh, and so on and so on, not the actual act itself for the sake of it, but a reference to it. The first is an article, and they're all pretty much short. They're not too long. First is from Friendly Atheist. Used him before. Used to read him all the time back in my new atheist days. Kind of a moderate, kind of a lib, but it's okay. Because it's so, when it comes to social issues, you don't need to. You can discuss the economic, of course. It's always in the background, but it's not explicitly there. So, you know, it's not good. You don't need a leftist perspective to make to, to say something that makes sense in a social justice context. So here's an article. It's called "Former Pro-Life Activist: My Body Shouldn't Be Up for Public Debate." I don't cover abortion debates very often. To me, it's kind of a, if not closed, but settled question to me. I don't talk about stuff that isn't really an issue for me. And of course, being pro-abortion, I don't say pro-choice, I say pro-abortion. I'm pro-abortion rights as a man, whatever. But of course, I'm not alone. It's not just a man's issue. But uh, it's more like I repeat everything that really smart women say (laughs) about this issue. And here's one of them. Two years ago, writer, uh, but of course it's it's uh, Hemant Manet is the friendly atheist. He is reporting on the work and speaking of someone else named Shannon Dingle. Two years ago, this writer, Shannon Dingle, wrote about how, as the mother of six kids, some of whom have disabilities and special needs, she thought her Republican church friends would support her push for policies that might make their lives easier, including her denunciation of the GOP's goal of allowing insurance providers to discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions. That's funny. This is published in 2020, by the way, but she's referring two years ago. And the GOP is apparently still arguing about this because this is, you know, discriminating against people pre-existing conditions. This is, that's Obamacare stuff. Anyway, her Republican friends didn't care about her situation. They defended the party's cruelty at all costs, even as it affected their friend's life directly. Not sure how they, well, they just justify from profit making. You know, they were not going to be able to make profits then. Notice for-profit health insurance is something that only exists in America, and it was something that had to be legalized post-60s in reaction to almost preventing public 
government-funded health care, because that's where things were going during the boom times. Anyway, her husband died last year unexpectedly. Also unexpected was realizing after his death that she was pregnant with his child. Now, as now a single mother, with health conditions that could make it life-threatening, abortion became a real possibility for this once pro-life activist. The pregnancy ultimately ended on its own, which I think infers to being a miscarriage, but I guess he, you know, avoiding using that word. But her concerns remain. It's not just about her either. With the Supreme Court in danger of lurching toward a conservative supermajority, Dingle has now written a piece for USA Today, major publication, about how those anti-abortion positions she used to hold no longer make sense. That's a picture of her family, which is multiracial. Don't know how that happened, but whatever. Read her books. I'm not pro-life anymore. Not in the political sense. And this is uh, quoting her. I'm not pro-life anymore, not in the political sense. I firmly believe that decisions regarding pregnancy should be between a patient and doctor, not predetermined impersonally by a mostly male governing body. My body shouldn't be up for public debate. You know, keep keep big government out of your body. Although that's, you know, you take that rhetoric and then it becomes anti-vax real quick. But it's this is a matter of personal health unless you make the case that preventing abortions is a matter of public health. Which I've I've heard people make that uh, try to make that argument. It's mostly like it becomes eugenics. Like we're not having enough kids. We're not having enough the right type of kids. Okay. If abortion wasn't an option, I likely would have faced death if the pregnancy had gone to full term. My kids would have faced the death of not only their father but also me, mother. Uh, we've barely survived this past year and few months as it is, but we wouldn't have made it with my physical and mental health overwhelmed by an unsafe pregnancy. Now, I'm glad I had the right to make decisions about how my story would unfold instead of having it decided for me by the Supreme Court or Congress. Back to Menet. You can complain about why she didn't come to the conclusion earlier, but the fact is that she's here now. This is an update, by the way. I should point out that she became pro-choice a few years before she was confronted with the situation. Interesting. So I wish there was kind of more background on that, but this is a short piece. She spent her life advocating for anti-abortion policies which means she's in a position where her rhetoric may carry more weight with others, particularly Christians, but others. That is, if any of them are willing to listen to her instead of just inhaling conservative propaganda. As Dingle writes, Caricatures make for good propaganda but terrible policy. We know the effects of anti-abortion laws in states where they've come to fruition. White evangelicals and conservative Catholics may not give a damn about how many lives they ruin by forcing women to give birth in every situation, but they ignore the hypocrisy when a preacher's daughter or conservative activist privately gets an abortion while saying something different in public. But it's voices like these that deserve to be heard far more than a pure flicks propaganda film about the evils of the procedure. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, yeah. So Dingle's quote was just the caricatures make for good propaganda, but bad policy. Can't agree more. That's why I try to break that by not being a caricature of a communist. Uh, though... If you get at me in a room with a right-winger and they start saying, giving their talking points, I don't know if I can't help, like, I can't help being, like, not frothing in the mouth, but just, like, get more militant by the second. <laughs> I no longer sound like a, you know, I lose composure. I'm not making good sense to, you know, in post. So next is the next, uh, the most racy article I have here which is about sex workers during COVID-19, um, particularly 
in the crisis. So, and in, 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 in the context of Build Back Better, and but not just that, but actually, it's not that. It's uh, it's more just the context of last year's by last year. Now, now the 2021 is coming to an end. Last year, I'm still referring to 2020, which the last article is also from. I've had these in the bank for a while, haven't I? But, you know, I, I kept wanting to do talk strategy and stuff, you know, as, as the election season and so on and so on. Okay, the quote. Uh, so this is from Bustle, uh, which is, we've always taken care of each other, how sex workers are coping during COVID-19. But uh, most of this article is actually more about the position they're put in by basically the discriminatory laws that, you know, make oh, sex work bad. Even though, well, the mar- it works in the marketplace and, uh, you know, it makes money. So, I mean, it sounds like you hate capitalism then. And you just want to you want to pick and choose what businesses are good or bad. Just say, just be that way, you know. Because I certainly can. And then we can actually have an honest debate about, like, well, we like these businesses or not. And then we can negotiate which are allowed and which aren't. Anyway. On March 27th, Congress passed the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Cares Act. Remember that? It was the it was the last economic stimulus, two trillion dollars, a relief package uh, that included the stimulus checks and also a lot of small business filling grants. But you know a lot of it, and the, like the rent relief, uh, hasn't still been uh, distributed because states just don't want to, or it's just not easy to, or they're giving it to you know it just it has to pass through middlemen because you can't just give people money; uh, they'll spend it on booze <laughs> or something else or things they like. So, right, it includes a small business money for a family and small businesses who have had economic impacts. But federal regs dating back to the 70s bars anyone whose work is of a prudent sexual nature from receiving relief funds and loans from the Small Business Administration. In other words, strip clubs, sex shops, and sex workers can all be excluded from government assistance. While these restrictions continue to negatively impact those in the sex economy, uh, worker advocates say that this is nothing new. Government is intentionally adding clauses that prevent tax-paying workers, sex workers, from gaining access to federal funding. This is Revin Rucher, founder of Reiki Bondage. It's created a stigma that sex work is illegitimate and something that should not be valued in the same light as other work. All work is work, though. It's the position of me. Uh, when Rucher grew concerned that coronavirus relief funds should would be difficult for her to access, she quickly shifted her classes, workshops, and sessions online. But while performers and independent contractors like her can, oh, Rucher, <laughs> that's a stage name, obviously, can shift some of their work to digital platforms, brick-and-mortar businesses and other venues are struggling to stay afloat. After the state of Wisconsin issued a safer-at-home order, you know, such establishments, can't actually get uh so they can't you know they close like everyone else but they can't get government assistance to stay open or rather to pay the rent or what have you so it mentions that i'll skip ahead the sba's covid economic injury disaster loan program application states that applicants cannot present live performances of a prudent sexual nature or profit from the sale of products or services that depict you know if you have no idea what prudent means, you're not the only one. According to Jeffrey Douglas, criminal defense attorney and chair of the board of the Free Speech Coalition, which is actually the trade association of the adult industry, the term is intentionally difficult to define. Now, all aside that the you know adult industry is very exploitative, it's capitalist, and, uh, and I'm not a real fan of strip clubs anyway, workers still should not be left in the cold. 
of any nature. And as long as we're in capitalism, we need the best deal for workers possible, wherever they are. But this is kind of old news. Just relating it though to you, though. The problem goes back to a completely unworkable definition for obscenity that the Supreme Court articulated in 1973. In the 80s, they finally defined what prudent means, which was a morbid or unhealthy interest in sex, as defined by the local contemporary community standard. So it sounds like every locality should have a byline in their charter of what the local standard of healthy and unhealthy sexual interest is. I'll have to bring this up to my common council. I'm sure they would say, uh, nothing. It, it, we're Mormons here. No, I'm sorry. We're, we're Puritans here. Because um, we certainly, I'm pretty sure we do not allow any such business here in Albany. This, is a, this comes from a backlash where we actually had the best sex industry in the country. People from all over the country used to come here for our, what do you call them? You know, places of sexual business. <laughs> but it was all shut down by the, uh, by the 70s, actually, um, or something. I mean, it was all cleared by as, as in slum, slum clearance for the highway. It's where the highway is, actually, <laughs> that we're actually now trying to tear down and, uh, you know, actually have a river park, a good river park. Per Douglas, because the local contemporary community standard, what a given city or state feels about something, is so hard to determine, it's nearly impossible for a legal system to decide what type of content constitutes uh, purient. No one understands what it means, and if you do understand what it means, you know you can't determine that community standard. But assuming there is a method to determine it, no employee of the SBA is possibly capable of making it. Douglas adds that the vagueness and confusion of these restrictions serve to keep business owners from accessing funds that are legally that they are legally entitled to. The presence of that language in the SBA rules makes people self-censor, Douglas says. It screens out people who are especially deserving of their support. It goes through some more business names, obviously, so the next step is suing the Small Business Administration. Talking to one dominatrix, I think the biggest misconception is that sex workers are excluded from government aid right now, Blunt tells Bustle. That's not to say that the government doesn't make it hard to get aid, but I encourage all sex workers who need to apply. Blunt says applying for government assistance as a sex worker or someone in the economy can be exhausting and overwhelming, but can be worth still a try. The system wasn't made to serve you, but we can support each other in getting the things we need and deserve. Sex worker advocate Kate Adamo, and the partner at Reframe Health and Justice Counseling, tells Bustle that sex workers and those in the industry should look at a state-based assistance program, which may be especially helpful for those who didn't file federal taxes or work under the table. While the process is daunting, Demonio says that there aren't explicit bans on sex working people receiving benefits, nor do you have to disclose your work to apply. Uh, while this community-oriented mindset undoubtedly helps sex workers and allies support each other, Jack the Stripper says these social networks developed as a survival tactic, as sex workers have long been accustomed to fending for themselves. We're always taking care of each other. We watch out for others, and we're continuing to do that. Uh, they've always had powerful networks and their own systems of you know mutual aid, basically. And it has a list of the work... That so onward to actually no sorry this will be the raciest uh, article actually why because it involves porn I've gone back and forth with friends of mine about this um, though I mostly remain quiet in the conversation 
Yeah. I, I, I have a number of people in my associations who are pretty anti-porn, and I'm neutral. <laughs> I'll, I'll say that. So, but this is from Insider and their health section. And here is it's from Sanjay Gupta. Isn't that what? Isn't that the main guy in CNN? He's definitely a main like health, uh, not just writer, but like talking head on TV. But this article was medically reviewed by a certified sex therapist in Long Island University. Oh, sorry, the Long Island Institute of Sex Therapy. So, the article is about how pornography. The title is "Pornography Addiction Is Not Real," according to leading psychologist. Here's when porn can be unhealthy. So kind of taking a uh, everything is bad and act in excess sort of thing. But just to discuss this in a, as a scientific form. Now, it's insider, so it's very, you know, bullet points. I've got the bullet points here. Uh, first things first, it's not classified as a true addiction. But our religious, cultural, and social mores lead some to view any kind of habit as being an addiction. Uh, if watching porn disrupts or negatively impacts your daily life, then you should, in fact, seek help. Viewing erotic content is on the rise. In 2019 alone, one of the world's leading porn sites uh, received 150 million visits per day. All that free, readily accessible content has got some folks thinking they're addicted to it. But is it is porn addiction real? Am I addicted to YouTube? Are you addicted to your email because you use it every day? I mean, it certainly feels that way. But here's where we can make uh, increase our vocabulary so we're not mixing things up and be a little more clear in our own minds about what kind of problems we do or don't have and what the solutions are to them. So first, is porn addictive? Pornography addiction is not recognized as an actual mental health problem by the American Psychological Association, though they have a lot of their critics as well overall. So it's not, a, it's not such a disorder like drug or alcohol addiction. Moreover, according to DSM-5, and by the way, it's not mentioned here, but I can mention from a nice uh, lecture I went to, that the, see, the amount of dopamine that's released during, say, an orgasm uh, is a, uh, one, it's like, it, it's, it's a magnitude less than the dopamine hit of drinking a beer or, or a shot of uh, other harder drugs. So meaning that uh, something can make you feel good, but if it, if it isn't so, like, if a chemical surge of dopamine isn't so much, right, so much, thousands of times more than, say, eating a slice of cake or something else that's, if not gratifying, but hedonistic, that there's a difference between doing things that are hedonistic and doing things like, say, uh, shooting up, which overloads your brain so much that it creates a pathway in which it is then painful not to keep doing it. That's what addiction is. Or at least that's what separates it. So you can't really be addictive to eating cake, but it can be, as this article points out, a compulsion, something you obsess over. So anyway, moreover, according to DSM-5, uh, which, you know, again, has its critics, the world's authority and has some problems, but it's not, but it's authoritative as it gets anyway. It's not a psychological disorder that, uh, you know, sex or pornography addiction. So they say, oh, I'm a sex addict, blah, blah, blah. I, I have to disagree, or at least psychiatry establishment does now of course if you're the type of person who thinks psychiatry establishment is full of it and they're all like you know money grubbing pill pushers fine this conversation is not going to change your mind um, but it certainly 
helps to know that there's another side to it, but that they have a side at all, uh, an, ex- an explanation or something to say about it. Besides, uh, you need to take pills or you need p- therapy, that'll be $1,000, please, because uh, they're kind of saying that's not the case. Anyway, but the reason comes down to neurochemistry, why it's not addiction. Well, watching content may activate similar pleasure circuits in the brain as, say, alcohol or heroin. Most experts agree that doesn't mean you can become addicted to watching content in the same way. That's because addiction to substances, for example, not only activates your brain's pleasure circuits, it actually changes your brain chemistry so that you can no longer release any of those chemicals like dopamine effectively without using the drug you're addicted to. That's how addiction works. So as far, in a, phys, in a material sense. So as far as researchers can tell, this is not the case for porn addiction. So what's going on instead? The more likely scenario is that porn addiction is more closely related to a type of compulsive, obsessive, or habitual behavior than actual abuse or addiction. In fact, people can develop compulsive, habitual connections to many things in their lives, especially if they alleviate anxiety or fulfill a sense of longing or loneliness. There's also the fact of the matter that, much like the rest of sexuality, enjoying erotic content is often done in secret and without context. In fact, most of the U.S. has no or purposely incorrect sexuality education. Oh, sorry, so they have no or personally you know, on purpose, incorrect sex ed, especially for young adults. This creates an environment for folks to misunderstand the erotic entertainment they are enjoying or using. Therefore, what people refer, you know, that's if, you know, they watch it, but they feel bad afterwards. (laughs) So they're not enjoying it. Therefore, what people refer to as porn addiction is essentially a conflict of values that's leading one to think one could be addicted. Neuroscientist, this is from a Nicole Prouse, PhD, neuroscientist who researches uh, sexual psychology, and is a practicing one at her firm, Happier Living. Kind of kooky name, though, but whatever. For instance, a large 2020 study published by the APA found that people's cultural, moral, and religious beliefs may lead them to believe they are addicted to pornography, even if they don't actually watch a lot of it. If you think you are struggling with porn, it is most likely that you are actually struggling with a conflict of your own personal values around your sexual behaviors and not really the porn itself. Now, this could be pushing things into a individual responsibility, personal problem direction. I'll be covering that later uh, if I get to it. I probably will. But it's mostly about, like, um, privatizing mindfulness. That's what it's about. So it's like, is this privatizing, you know, having a unhel- any kind of an unhealthy compulsion? Not treating it like a social issue, but, of course, it can be. That's certainly how everyone else talks about it. How much porn is too much, though? Uh, that's an important question. At what point does your pleasure from watching it content become problematic? There's no clear answer to this because it varies from person to person, which is what makes it extremely difficult for researchers to where to draw the line. Kind of reminds you of uh, the conversation we just had about where localities could draw the line on what counts as a sexual content or not in the first place. And that could block you from public assistance. Actual material uh, effects. Moreover, Praz says people who struggle with their porn viewing almost always have an underlying disorder. could be depression. That actually requires treatment. By promoting porn addiction, research-backed treatments are delayed while people continue to suffer. This is her view. Overall, what sex therapists see most often is a lack of other social and sexual connections and difficulties accessing other coping mechanisms. So it's more like you have access to one because it's just the internet 
and uh, you don't have, say, other hobbies or access to other hobbies because maybe you live in suburbia and there's just no bowling anymore. People can't go bowling, so there's no bowling, so you just have to stay at home and watch you know, Netflix and chill, whatever, whatever that's code for. Huh. So and then it gives tips on you know, how to stop if you think you're watching too much. Understand the impact on your life. Sit with your fears about reducing your intake. Formulating an action plan. Seek therapy. This is about getting over any kind of compulsion, really. That's why I'm just giving the general overview. And the other thing is to get screened for other mental health conditions. Otherwise, I'm, you know, I'm shilling for the psychiatric industry right now. <laughs> but really, I just see it as a part of modern medicine and modern healthcare. And if it was completely nationalized, meaning we have a single payer, a public healthcare system, it's no longer private, pharmaceutical companies are nationalized, you know, there's no profit motive at work, you know, it's not no longer capitalist. We can take that out of the, well, I can't trust this because it's for profit. Well, then why do you trust anything that's for profit? But you buy things at Walmart, you buy things at CVS, you know, or you go, you know, this or that, and things made by companies. It's like, it's, it could all be bunk. If you think this, just it's just this industry you have a bias against, you know, that's where I'm like cocking my head. Like, okay, look, you're, you're anti-capitalist like me, great, love it. You know, you want to make your own medicine, your own meds, or you do, uh, do our own uh, psychological work on ourselves. Okay, fine, you know, let's read up, uh, pick our sources carefully, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I don't know, I'm not going to throw out an entire profession or, you know, the body of work that's been developed over a century. Even if parts of it are, have faulty assumptions or, or they just, they just, there's a lot of unknowns to it. Sure. We just we work to recognize it. So but here's an insider's takeaway. Researchers are divided on whether watching excessive amounts of porn is a psychological disorder, a product of repressive views about sexuality or a manifestation of another type of condition. Watching and so on and uh, exploring your sexuality can, in fact, be beneficial action to your life, sex life or otherwise. Women report overwhelmingly positive effects from viewing porn, primarily as a method of increasing their drive for a partner or experiencing pleasure. While couples view porn together, they tend to report a more satisfying sex life. This is talking from someone who's a sex therapist. Nonetheless, if you feel like you're watching too much, you should seek help from a qualified pro. So that's uh, written by Sandra Gupta, name familiar, I think uh, very much so. Now on to safer topics, <laughs> safer waters now. <laughs> Let's move forward. I identify as arrow, aromantic. That's the only kind of queerness I can really claim to. But I like promoting queerness as not only a subculture, but an actual cultural uh, new hegemony. So let's discuss some stories that hit on that, you know, kind of that, that theme. The first is from pop, pop blog, Psych Daily, Psych News Daily. You know, when something's called the news, you know, blank news daily, it's, uh, it's pop, pop, pop journalism here. So it has take with a grain of salt with all the problems that science journalism has. I'll say if I can tease them out as I go along. But anyway, when there's a study that actually kind of says something interesting to me and I look at it and I'm like, okay, they, they didn't have to explain why their study has blind spots or what kind of bias could be at work because uh, th this one links to one that, uh, or at least it's in the similar article section. 
where they have to spend a third of the article explaining the problems with their experiment. <laughs> well, not their experiment, their survey, because it's just a survey, self-selected and all that, and self-reporting. <laughs> self-reporting results about people's uh, flirting ability. And how, like, oh, in Greece, half of the 30-year-olds uh, we polled said they had trouble flirting. <laughs> and that's why they're single. So, anyway, but this, uh, okay, this is uh, more, this is different at least to me. This new study finds that 68% of romantic couples started out as friends. So this is a study of 1,900 adults, half of which are students, meaning college students, found that two-thirds of romantic couples started out platonic. Meaning, the conclusion is, eh, maybe there isn't this uh, separation between uh, romantic and non-romantic, platonic and love and that. You know, it was, it was, uh, at least in the me you know, in media and literature and culture, there's is, is a hegemony of this type of love, this type of sex, this type of romance. And uh, it's very you know, it's heteronormative or it's just normative in the first place. And the fact that there's not this diversity there, when it is there, it's weird. Or worse, you're a sexless robot. Meaning asexual. Okay. So a new study published today, in, or, or you're made to feel like an outsider, which I do at times. A new study published today in Social, Psychological, and Personality Science. So it's a journal. Is it a real journal? <laughs> I'd have to find it. I'd have to research. <laughs> I do my own research, folks. But it finds that two-thirds of romantic couples started out in a platonic relationship. This friends list, friends first initiation of romance, is often overlooked by researchers. And that's what piques my interest, something, that, something that's been overlooked by normative culture. Sign me up. I want to hear more. Examining a sample of previous studies on how relationships begin, the authors found that nearly 75% focused on the spark of romance between strangers. Love at first sight. By contrast, only 8% centered on romance that develops among friends over time. Now, there are a lot of people, quoting this study here, there are a lot of people that would feel very confident saying that we know why and how people choose partners and become a couple and fall in love. But our research suggests that that is not the case. This is lead author Danu Anthony Stinson, the University of Victoria, that's in Canada. We might have a good understanding of how strangers become attracted to each other and start dating, but that's simply not how most relationships begin, she said. Now, the team analyzed data of nearly 1,900 participants. 900 were university students, 1,000 were older. All in all, 68% reported that their current and most recent romantic relationship began as a friendship versus, for example, meeting at a party or online. So all of these people can be assumed, and this is my aside, all these people can be assumed to be romantic, to be or all, or, all romantic, as, uh, as we say in the queer bids. <laughs> versus aromantic, or demi-romantic, where you're romantic sometimes or with the right people. But that's the thing. If, if you've got to have a, a word in queer circles for, like, I can only be romantic, but only if, if I've been friends with them for enough time, or if I have a deep relationship with them in some other way, or platonic friends, and then I can get romantic with them. And it turns out that that's actually most people. Then we're just finding, well, we're just have creating, you know, Online spaces are creating new language to basically talk about the way things actually are. It's just a matter of recognizing that it's actually, it's not a special marginal thing, actually. It's actually, we're just, what queerness does is it actually 
elucidates reality, that there is a diversity in sexuality and romantic tastes or, or how romance happens, which is great. There was little variation across gender, level of education, or ethnic group, but the rate of friends' first initiation was even higher among 20-somethings and within queer communities, in which groups 85% reported that the relationship began as a friendship. Uh, editorial note, I use queer as a replacement for saying LGBTQ+. Okay. Most romantic couples are friends first for a year or two. Among university students, friends first initiators were friends for one to two years before being romantic or, you know, growing into romance. Researchers noted that the vast majority of these participants reported they did not enter their friendships with romantic intentions, which is something like I've always been led to believe, which, but, but, but it always creeps me out. It's like I have to go in like with motives and that just feels yucky. Uh, Stinson also noted that the average length of pre-romance relationships means it is likely that the couples were genuine platonic friends before transitioning to romance. Now, these are like people, you know, half half are like, you know, Zoomers, actually. They say older adults. They didn't give, uh, they're not saying how much older. Now, if they're, if everyone here is under 40, then this is definitely maybe a new development that we're not meeting at for level four sight. You know, like my my grandparents and, and, his, and their family. Because I just kind of reviewed the kind of uh, second cousins I have. Um, I have second cousins in Australia and some in Norway. And the ones in Australia are a result of, uh, you know, my grandfather's brothers or something or one of his cousins uh, falling in love, you know, during the Pacific War. And he found his way back after being discharged and going back to the States to do so and then finding his way back to Australia. So, um, moving on. So, friends first preferred over meeting at parties or online. Nearly half of the students reported that starting as friends was their preferred way of developing a romantic relationship. That's also what I would say. Making it far and away more popular than other options presented, such as meeting at a party or online. Of course, I need more girlfriends, okay? Uh, I need more ways to find girlfriends. Because uh, usually when I go to meetups or, and I don't mean parties, but I mean like I'm in a scene and a lot of the uh, women are already paired up. So it's like, uh, okay, uh, we're the ones that I can be friends with who are also single. And then we can actually grow into a couple. Because that's the way I vision it, I guess. But I also don't want to have the motive like, oh, I, I'm being friends with you now with the potential that we could be friends. I mean, but I'm saying that up front, you know, on OkCupid and whatever. She also hopes that this research will push people to revisit their preconceived notions about love and friendship. Oh, wait, wait. Given the prevalence of romantic couples who began platonically, Stitson would like to see further studies examining this kind of initiation. She also hopes that this research will push people to revisit their preconceived notions about love and relationship and friendship. Stitson notes that we are often taught that romance and friendship are dissimilar types of relationships that form in different ways and to meet distinct needs. But quoting her, our research suggests that the lines between these are blurry. And I think that, force, and that forces us to rethink our assumptions about what makes a good friend, but also what makes a good romantic partner or relationship. He uses the word relationship. Now, related is new study finds not knowing how to flirt, main reason between involuntary singlehood. But I read that, and it's a mess. 
Yeah, and, and that's the, the type of articles here. It's like, okay, maybe this whole site is sketchy. You know, what do dreams about being pregnant really mean? Well, I haven't had that dream. I guess it's because of my body. So, but here's something more about queer culture being more like the future hegemony. You know, the gay agenda, now the trans agenda. <laughs> but here's an article uh, that is not too old. It's this year. And it features celebrity actor Daniel Craig who says he goes to gay bars to avoid fights at straight venues. He says he dislikes the aggression of hetero spaces, and gay bars are a good place to meet women. Maybe I should follow his, advice, uh, his example. But I'm also not. I'm not Daniel Craig. <laughs> anyway, an explanation. From his portrayal of the more vulnerable Bond to his uh, cerise suit jacket, which is, you know, an off-blue... Daniel Craig has worked hard to defy expectations of masculinity. So it came as a little surprise when the actor revealed he liked to frequent gay bars to avoid the aggressive blank swinging of heterospaces. Junk swinging. I've been going to gay bars for as long as I can remember, Craig said on a podcast, Lunch with Bruce. One of the reasons, because I don't get into fights in gay bars that often. He's 53 years old. He says he started going to gay bars when he was young because he wanted to avoid ending up being in a punch-up during night out which he said happened quite a lot at straight venues. Craig, who has been married to Rachel Weiss for a decade, also said that he, when he was single, so he's also talking about in the past here, it was a good way to meet women. Gay bars would just be a good place to go. Everybody was chill, everybody. You just didn't have that sort of state, your sexuality. It was okay, and it was a very safe place to be. And I could meet girls there, because there were a lot of girls there for exactly the same reason I was there. It was a kind of ulterior motive. Craig, who made his name starring alongside Jason Alex and Angels, oh, Angels in America, a Pulitzer Prize-winning play examining AIDS and homosexuality in the U.S. in the 80s, I didn't know that, has always been comfortable bending the boundaries of his. He recently set fans into a spin when he told Stephen Colbert that he kissed all of his leaning men after the No Time to Die villain, Rami Malek, said that he had once had a May playful swoosh after rehearsal. You know, the thing is, it just breaks the ice, Craig said. You know, once you do that, everything else is natural, right? Podcast comments were largely welcomed by a queer community on Thursday, though some felt uncomfortable about his attempts to meet women in gay spaces. Okay, the last bit is a tad gross, but who amongst us hasn't taken a straight friend or a gay bar who's ended up pulling? This is the culture magazine, The Glue. That's just some, you know, just random socialite reactions. Don't care. Want to... Wrap up with the thing that's for me, which is, uh, so this is from Temple University. I thought that was a conservative place. Maybe it is. I No, it can't be. It can't be. So uh, Temple University published this. It is a opinion piece. Why aromantic and asexual people belong in the queer community current acronym being LGBTQIA+. <laughs> That's why I use queer. It's too long. It's like, oh, how many more letters is it going to be? Oh, it's too It's the alphabet. <laughs> Fine. Well, can we use queer <laughs> as a shorthand? So this is written by Jennifer Pollitt, an assistant professor and assistant director of gender, sexuality, and women's studies. Talks about asexuality and aromanticism and provides insight into these lesser-known identities and why they're so often overlooked. Now, I've probably read something exactly like this before, but um, it's the title that kind of gets me like, okay, I haven't covered this part. 
Let's see, what else has she worked on? Let's see. She organizes a Me Too conference in Philadelphia. She has developed comprehensive curricula, sex curricula for the AMA and other universities. She also belongs to the nation's oldest and largest legal advocacy group for queer rights. Those who live with HIV as a member of the queer community, she is a strong ally of asexuals and aromantics, and we asked her to share her knowledge of these lesser-known identities. So um, since I'm limited time, I'll skip to question that matters because I've covered all this before, right? You know, ask them about the asexuals who pursue romantic relationships or aromantics who pursue them. So there's a huge difference between orientation, behavior, and identity. The sexual or romantic behavior you engage in does not necessarily correlate with the identity that you're using to describe your experiences. This seems counterintuitive, right? Why describe yourself as this if it doesn't describe your behavior? If we just look at someone's actions, that doesn't tell the whole story in the same way that identity alone doesn't tell the whole story. Same goes for sexual orientation because you need to consider all three factors if you're generally interested in understanding that person. Factors being orientation, their behavior, and how they identify. So it's like, um, let's see. I'm sure there's a good analogy for that. That there can be, you can have three things that kind of describe something accurately, uh, but do also mean things. But I think the issue is like, well, they're contradictory. If you say you're asexual, but you can have sex sometimes with the right person. Okay. So if in the queer community, aromantics and asexuals are being met with some resistance. Why is that? If we take a look at the arc of queer civil rights movements, contention has arisen regarding marriage equality being a major focal point of the movement. But of course, more radical queer people didn't care about marriage. It was actually more about ending marriage. Um, namely, why did it have to come first? Not every queer person wants to marry. Many felt that workplace discrimination policies should come first because jobs would provide financial security. Why are we pushing marriage to the forefront of this movement as if this will determine whether or not we've made it? They look at who it was thrust in the spotlight. Didactic, cisgender, typically white, middle to upper class, lesbian and gay people. And that is not representative of even the majority of the queer community. Yet that was the political and legal strategy used to order to gain access to necessary power resources. By creating a platform that made us resemble the existing power st structures, that leaves out and leaving out entire groups of people, like trans, we are able to access some of that much-needed power. Just, but for some of the people, right? The people were already a class up. So that mindset replicates itself within the community so that when a new identity emerges or when people try to explain themselves, there is resistance and pushback from within the community with the mindset of, if we let these kind of people in, then that will dilute the access to power and resources we have. And it forces the community to maintain adjacency to white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, ableism, and classism, and all while leaving behind these entire groups of people. Because it's scarcity mindset. It's capitalism. Hell of that. So um, with what issues have asexual and romantic people experienced that are comparable to those in other queer communities? So the biggest comparison is the lack of visibility and exclusion from communities on the basis that they're weird, different, othered, or they don't belong here. Every queer person has experienced this narrative and has more joined under the umbrella. The newbie will experience the same challenges and other misunderstandings. Do you think there will be more identities joining the acronym? Yes, the more words we have to describe ourselves, the better we are understood. Those words can change depending on the phase of life that somebody's in, their experiences, their history, so on. 
In this field, more than any other field at this time, the language of gender and sexuality is exponentially changing. So then it just becomes, of, oh, do we like, is change good? Is change bad? It's something. It's something that's happening. And that is, I think, exciting, no matter what. It's interesting. It's something that makes life, ah, you know, uh, it is so very, so very interesting. Okay, so I have another minute left, um, just in the mark of time. But that is, uh, so I'll just wrap up the social issues, not the this side of the social issues section. I actually got through it all. Wonderful. Not quite as explained, uh, you know, not, not quite an explosion of information. But hopefully, it's a, it's a, I think that's a lot to process. But you notice the connections I was making there throughout, right? Between questioning, uh, standards, and the fact that as far as our laws are concerned, there are no standards. And yet, we legislate people's lives anyway. Terrible, right? Authoritarian. Evil. Tyranny. We should have a movement about that.
Dance break complete. I'm back. This is Dan Platt of the Three Left Show. Welcome to the second hour. That was, if you couldn't tell, Green Day with Revolution Radio. Probably their last album, I don't know, but it was a recent one. Notice how clean it was, uh, language-wise. So I'm uh, catching a bit on my breath. I actually was dancing to that. Um, I've been sitting all day in another hour sitting. So now that I've covered that, you know, relationships and love and, well, not love, but and lust. Now to talk of kind of just society as a whole. That's, that's what this is. Social. Now I focused on individual social issues, so to speak, even though, of course, it's all universal too. But now for social issues at large, you know, attitudes and whatever. Um, in no particular order. No, well, I mean sort of an order. But I have two that are kind of simpatico with each other. Last one I haven't read in a long time. But they're not too long. So I will cover everything, I think. I don't know if I'll do the museum piece last or not, though. We'll see how long these take me. Six minutes in already. So this is from the New Statesman. I actually haven't read a lot from the New Statesman, but there are, I believe, a British magazine that has been around for a hundred years. <laughs> Independent journalism in the British Isles. Or the not-so-British Isles. Hibernia. <laughs> so anyway, the title of this one is How Mindfulness Privatized a Social Problem. So this is more about the privatization, the for-profit the commercialization of basically anything good or radical. It's sort of interesting to see the, if not in real time, but the slow kind of decay of culture is also the absorption of culture. We call it cannibalization, you know. It eats itself, or rather it eats other things of a, to sustain its life force. Health and wellness or self-help industries, they have to just keep gobbling up other terms or concepts from afar or abroad that could be actually better for expanding our consciousness, but then it just becomes another part of the self-help industry or just, it just, it's, people make money off of it. And if you do it for a little bit, then you, ha you basically have to keep doing it to keep earning your keep in this system we call capitalism, where everyone needs to pay rent, even if, you know, unless you own the land and you're the owner, but when you look at the stats of who actually is the owners, it's not so many people, is it? Maybe there's a dictatorship of capitalism, not communists, not any leftists or moderates even. Uh, so anyway, this is written by Hetty O'Brien. In December 2008, oh, let's see, when was this written? Summer of 2019. That's how long I've had this around. But, you know, see, now that I've, I've been reading, like with the last episode, all of these older articles, you know, once, once I'm through all of them, then I'm like, okay, I'm ready. I can cut down my show, I can, I feel free, you know, the burden is off, I can focus on particular topics of my local situation, so if I have a, if I do have any national listeners, I may you, lose you, but I'm actually freeing up my time so that I can stream online and then you can watch me there, and I can actually put my content, or at least half of it, on YouTube and actually have, a, you know, some kind of mill going, something going that I do not have now, because I just do not have the energy for it. So in December 2008, while forcibly evicting a tenants from a concrete high-rise high in South London, 
Southwark Council pulled off a remarkable feat of complacency. The residents didn't know it at the time. Every flat in the development that replaced the Hellgate estate would be sold to foreign investors, despite the council's repeated promises of new social housing. By the way, an estate is what's usually uh, like a, a housing, any kind of housing complex, usually of a, of a public or social nature. Recognizing that people were stressed, counselors hired life coaches and spiritual ministers to run workshops teaching residents how to progress emotionally. I'm, by the way, I'm going to read a lot of this with smarminess in my voice. Forgive me if, if this resonates. The company behind the workshop, The Happiness Project. The Happiness. That's why the, the, the title of the other business uh, of the, I think it was the sex therapist. I was like, hmm, that's kind of sus. This one's called The Happiness Project and was founded by British positive psychologist Robert Holden, the author of Shift Happens. The firm's motto was, success is a state of mind. Happiness is a way of traveling. Love is your true power. That people are about to lose their homes where stressed is hardly surprising. The council encouraged residents to look inwards towards their brain chemistry. Oh, is that porn addiction? And in doing so, cast itself as a solution rather than a cause of the problem. Its response typified the idea of magical voluntarism, coined by Mark Fisher, described as the belief that it is within every individual's power to make themselves whatever they want to be. The connection between stress, that's, that's magical voluntarism. Now, when I hear that phrase, I'm thinking more of a, the belief that uh, if we all just volunteer our time, we can do whatever we want and everything, we can get done things. But that usually goes up against the wall real quick. The wall. The connection between stress and economics is well documented. In their 2009 book, The Spirit Level, Kate Plinkett and Richard Wilkinson identified a strong correlation between inequality and poor reported mental health. In a report published last month, Dr. Danis Puras, the UN Special Rapporteur on Health, stated that confronting inequality would be a more effective prophylactic for poor mental health than excessive therapy or medication. Take that for being, you know, Take that, Big Pharma. Yet governments often offer treatments that focus on the individual. So it's not just a matter of profit for Big Pharma, right? But this is what feeds into that. You know, there needs to be an ideological basis, a justification mentally for it, right? So here we, we justify it with, uh, with this magical voluntarism that, like, you just don't have the right mindset. So once we get people the right mindset, then they'll they'll be happy little workers. And that's where, that's where you know... Let me finish the paragraphs. Governments opt out, often offer treatments that focus on the individual rather than social maladies. Most don't want to be thinking about how their policies might be contributing to the problems in the first place, says David Harper, clinical psychologist at the University of East London. In the UK, the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence, that's NICE, stand, acronym NICE, recommends cognitive behavioral therapy, acronym CBT a treatment that focuses on raising awareness of negative emotions and developing coping strategies. Something any social work, you know, book goes on and on and on about. Uh, so I'm, I'm well, I'm well acquainted with it. Preoccupation with the symptoms of mental illness rather than their social causes 
is because there's no big drug lobby behind prevention, Harper says. Treatments such as CBT have proved a cost-effective cattle prod for hurting the mentally ill off welfare benefits. As chancellor, George Osborne introduced the therapy for 40,000 recipients of job seekers allowance as part of a back to work agenda. So instead of uh, unemployment insurance, you get some life coaching. Now I've seen, you know, see, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy. It is good for people who are actually really messed up, but it shouldn't be used, but he's using, he's referring to it as a cattle prod because these people say aren't alcoholics. They're not addicts. They're not people who such therapy should be about not just not getting them off of welfare. It should be like they can, they should still be able to be on welfare, but just function. Cause when, let's see, the negative, negative emotions, you know, the negative emotions that lead one to drink or to, you know, have an addiction or to keep you from overcoming personal issues, personal problems. The issue is being able to identify things that are not just a personal problem, but a social problem. Getting a job, for example, when we're in economic crisis. Or there's the greater question of there are jobs out there, right? But they're all degrading, humiliating, and not worth having. Or I can get them and I'll get by, but just barely. But with inflation gone up roughly 6% or wages going up and salaries going up 6%, is everyone getting a 6% range? No way. Thus, we need social solutions to these problems that come through organizing and political action, et cetera, et cetera. Refer to my strategy episodes on all that. An industry has formed around this stressed subject, says Ron Purser, a long-standing Buddhist and academic at San Fran State University. His particular concern is the commercialization, there's another key word for you, of mindfulness, whose whole original status as a radical Buddhist practice has been almost entirely lost. Quoting him, The dominant mindfulness narrative is that stress is all inside your own head, he says. You can't separate the individual from the environment. We're embodied social beings. That's the reality, right? Not that it's all in your own head. Mindfulness is the psychological practice of focusing one's attention on experiences in the present moment. It is offered by the NHS, recommended by NICE, and like CBT, encourages the development of coping strategies. You know, coping. You know, you either hope, you cope, or you dope. In this new book, in his new book, Mick Mindfulness, Purser takes aim at the lucrative mindfulness industry. Let's get this. Worth an estimated $4.2 trillion. And that's in 2017. More than 100,000 books for sale on Amazon have a variant of the word in their title. The U.S. military offers such training classes in mindfulness. In 2007, Google launched a mindfulness course called Search Inside Yourself, which has been spun into a nonprofit body. That's when I really became suspicious, notes Purser. The mindfulness movement, if you call it movement, but a trend, I'll call it trend. If it's something that's happening in commercial sectors, I call it a trend, not a movement. Even though, I mean, movements are made of people, and if all the people happen to be executives, I guess it's still a movement. But you should call it a corporate movement then, not a social movement or a people's movement. You know, distinguish them, you know? Join the movement for Pepsi. <laughs> Okay, so it took off in 1979 
key year, uh, pay attention to the year, when one of its progenitors, John Kabat-Zinn, founded the Stress Reduction Clinic at the University of Massachusetts. The same year, Margaret Thatcher became prime minister, a year before Ronald Reagan was elected U.S. president. Purser argues that mindfulness has become the perfect coping mechanism for neoliberal capitalism. It privatizes stress and encourages people to locate the root of mental ailments in their own work ethic. You know, you just, you're tying your self-worth to how much value you're, you're producing for capitalists or value you're producing for, you know, your company, you know, for what exactly, for what exactly. As a psychological strategy, it promotes a particular form of revolution, one that takes place within the heads of individuals fixated on self-transformation rather than as a struggle to overcome collective suffering. It's dangerous to generalize about mental health. For some, contemplative practices could be the key to reducing suffering. But I put this to him. Purser cites the American feminist Audre Lorde, who wrote that caring for myself is not a form of self-indulgence indulgence it is self-preservation and that is an act of political war warfare in mcmindfulness he argues that reducing suffering is a noble aim and it should be encouraged but therapies like mindfulness as currently practiced perpetuate a form of a cruel optimism he warns we are told that mindfulness is the path to happiness and security regardless of our circumstances and that success, as the Happiness Project piously told Haygate residents losing their homes, is merely a state of mind. Like the dry wit from the, the New Statesman, which is a left-leaning social democrats, I think, social, democratic socialists at best. Um, they're definitely left of center. So the next piece is kind of very, very similar, at least as far as mm, the heart of social issues in capitalism, like what makes capitalism so toxic to our social lives to to our society overall it's it's mechanisms it's 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 purposes it's motives for things it's drivers it's incentives so the other side of things is um basically talk meritocracy now i don't know if i've covered like a batch meritocracy before i probably have in one way or another but this is more focusing in on it and i might as well end to go along with the last piece from the atlantic oh boy the atlantic love them how life became an endless, terrible competition. You know, it's funny how the Atlantic can be so moderate, so so just rad lib at times. But but I guess it's something. It, it is something rad lib related to complain or to recognize that meritocracy is is a dystopian. Uh, even you know, it's 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 a pro, it's a false promise. But I think the the the, the side of it that you know they, they don't go far enough by saying, and that's why we need collective economic planning because this whole you know we're going to distribute the the prizes and the the rewards of society to you know the people with the most merit but kind of like obscenity how do you define that it kind of matters and if it's vague and it, or or if merit is a matter of how much you're producing how much how much how many hours you work i think i don't have to rant about why that's bad that's not that's not like the that's not the, those aren't my goals that's not most people's goals and that's why I always kind of get really, like, antsy when I read something like a politician like Eric Adams of New Mayor of New York talking like, look, I did my listening tour and people just, they want things to work. They want the city to pick up their trash and police their neighborhood and they just want to be left alone. They want to be able to live and work their jobs in peace. I'm like, 
but what their jobs are peaceful. I mean, that's, but yeah, for some people, their job is nice or it's, you know, it has benefits, whatever it, it has, it actually provides them security, but it's really such a false sense of security, isn't it? Especially with climate collapse coming, coming in the, you know, coming in the frame. Maybe another decade will hit people that the, the, this whole, like, just keep things normal. Just keep things stable. It's not going to work or it can't, it can't, it can't stay this way. You know, just, just do a just transition, whatever. I'll pay a little taxes, whatever. It's, no, there's more to it than that. Not with the way things are set up. Can't stay apathetic and, you know, just be, just leave me alone, but just pick up my trash and, and I won't complain. So anyway, how life became an endless, terrible competition. Meritocracy prizes achievement above all else, making everyone, even the rich, miserable. Maybe there's a way out. Written by Daniel Markovitz. Now, in the summer of 1987, I graduated from public high school in Austin, Texas, and headed northeast to attend Yale. Ooh, Ivy League guy. I then spent nearly 15 years studying at various U's. London School of Economics, University of Oxford, Hartford, finally Yale Law, picking up a string of degrees along the way. Today, I teach at Yale Law, where my students unnervingly resemble my younger self. They are overwhelmingly products of professional parents in high-class universities. I pass on to them the advantages that my own teachers bestowed on me. They and I owe our prosperity and our caste to meritocracy. Two decades ago, when I started writing about economic inequality, meritocracy seemed more likely a cure than a cause. Meritocracy's early advocates championed social mobility. In the 60s, for instance, Yale President Kingman Brewster brought merit meritocratic admissions to the university, the express aim of breaking an hereditary elite. Alumni had long believed that their sons had a birthright to follow them to Yale. Now prospective students would gain a mission based on achievement rather than breeding. Meritocracy for a time replaced complacent insiders with talented and hardworking outsiders. Pretty nice, right? American dream. What America stands for. Today's Meritocrats still claim to get ahead through talent and effort using means open to anyone. In practice, however, meritocracy now excludes everyone outside of a narrow elite. Really, so basically, even though you've changed the, the methodology of how people get in, the underlying social dynamics and economic power didn't change. So it just kind of reset itself. And that's where you get into the, oh, you can't do anything about X, because it's pointless, you know, everything will just reset or, or it's always, government's always corrupt, so we should just work on getting rid of government, defunding government, whatever. But it's like, look, government's corrupt because of capitalism, man. And, and corporations are exploitative because of the system. And everyone never, never, never wants to touch that because that's more dangerous. But there's enough of us, more than we are, the less dangerous it gets. Okay. So onward. Harvard, Princeton, Stanford, Yale collectively enroll more students from households in the top 1% of the income distribution than from households in the bottom 60. So meaning like the 1% are now, they're all people who, you know, merit, they're all merit, they're all from the meritocracy. They, they all earn their way in, right? So that means there's this justification that they earn their place there. They deserve to be billionaires. They deserve to run the economy. So, yeah, so, <laughs> but then it's like, where, where's the debate about, like, what makes that right? 
what makes the inequality right. So it's justified now. So that's the ideology of, of liberal, liberals, liberalism, at least to me, the type of lib neoliberalism. That you know, neoliberalism, meritocracy is also something just like mindfulness. It's something that came about in the seventies, or was enacted then because of the unrest in the sixties. That was the kind of like, okay, 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 we'll release our grip, but we'll do it in a way that doesn't change anything. Legacy preferences. Legacy preferences, nepotism, and outright fraud continue to give rich applicants corrupt advantages. But the dominant cause of this key skew towards wealth can be traced to meritocracy. On average, children whose parents make more than 200 grand a year score about 250 points higher on the SAT than children whose parents make 40 grand or 60 grand. Only about 1 in 200 children from the poorest third of households achieve stat scores at Yale's median. Meanwhile, the top bank and law firms, along with other high-paying employers, recruit almost exclusively from the few elite colleges. Hard-working outsiders no longer enjoy genuine opportunity. According to one study, only out of every 100 children born into the poorest fifth of households, the fewer than one out of every 50 children born into the mi middle fifth will join the top 5%. Absolute economic mobility is also declining. The odds that a middle-class child will out-earn his parents have fallen by more than half since mid-century, and the drop is greater among the middle class than among the poor. Meritocracy frames this exclusion as a failure to measure up, adding a moral insult to economic injury. Because, you know, to even be able to work hard to get into Yale, you already had to be middle class. So it did allow, from the 60s onward, the middle class to be able to kind of raise up themselves a little bit, but only enough, only like, you know, a minority of them. The rest have declined you know they're the declining middle class so the middle class we got to save and the people that are supposedly going to save them are the ones that they came from those places but it's like no 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 we earned our place here you can too and the fact that you couldn't means you're undeserving just as undeserving as the poor and the criminals we've had progress in that the elite worked hard or at least somewhat worked hard even though they had a head start being from middle class backgrounds whether they be, you know, shareholders in emerald mines like Musk or or Bill Gates, who had, uh, you know, his, his, uh, one of his parents on the board of, of a particular organization. I forget where I read it, but, you know, basically he got his startup money and connections very early on. Public anger over economic inequality frequently targets meritocratic institutions. Nearly three-fifths of Republicans believe that colleges and universities are bad for America, according to Pew Research Center. The intense and widespread fury generated by the college admissions scandal early this year tapped into a deep and broad well resentment. This anger is warranted, but also distorting. Outrage at nepotism and other disgraceful forms of elite advantage-taking implicitly valorizes meritocratic ideals. Yet meritocracy itself is the bigger problem and it is crippling the American dream. Meritocracy has created a competition that, even when everyone plays by the rules, only the rich can win. But what exactly have the rich won? Even meritocracy's beneficiaries now suffer on account of its demands. It ensnares the rich just as surely as it excludes the rest, as those who manage to claw their way to the top must work with crushing intensity, 
ruthlessly exploiting their expensive education in order to extract a return. No one should weep for the wealthy, but the harms that meritocracy imposes on them are both real and important. Now, that's why communism would actually help Elon Musk, too. You know, he could, he could relax. <laughs> uh, we are diagnosing how meritocracy hurts elites, kindles hope for a cure. We are accustomed to thinking that reducing inequality requires burdening the rich. But their meritocratic inequality does not, in fact, serve anyone well. Escaping meritocracy's trap would benefit virtually everyone. You know, it's just about, uh, not just about, but convincing these meritocratic elite, you know, which are capitalists, that they can slow down. Now, I think there are some trends in corporate America where it's like, you know, the triple bottom line or, I mean, some of it's just greenwashing and I've covered that. And in other times it's like, yeah, yeah, we're going to slow down. We're not going to just pursue profitability at all costs. But do they really mean it? Are the shareholders going to let them do that? Because this is where the shareholders, the passive income earners, are the true quote-unquote villains, class villains. You know, I'm not I'm saying they're you know actual villains, but but they're the people that are like people who are generating passive income. So they're not even doing hard work as as merit, meritocrats, right? Where even even the ex hardworking executives who are at the top and in the public eye. But they're also working extremely hard, um, and they feel like they've earned their place, and in some ways they have. But what isn't earned is the inequality of it all. To say that, like, yeah, you're working forty, you know, sixty-hour weeks, but so does a dishwasher at this high-skill restaurant, and they're making minimum wage. You're working just the same amount. Their work is probably dirtier than yours, maybe less stressful. Okay. Elites first, you know, they have to ask, why are you so stressed out? Why do you have to work so hard? And it's like, well, I have to keep up the competition, right? It's a competition. Elites first confront meritocratic pressures in early childhood. And it goes through all that. Schools, demands, you know, it's, it's really, really kind of tough talking about their struggles, I guess. Because that's who reads the Atlantic. It's not working people. So I'm going to skip ahead, especially since I don't want to take all day. In 1962, when many elite lawyers earned roughly a third of what they do now, the American Bar Association would confidently declare that there are approximately 100, 1,300 fee-earning hours per year available to the normal lawyer. In 2000, by contrast, a major law firm pronounced with equal confidence that a quota of 2,400 billable hours, if properly managed, was not unreasonable, which is a euphemism for necessary for having a hope of making partner. Because not all the hours a lawyer works are billable. Billing 2,400 hours could easily require working 8 a.m. until 8 p.m. You know, 10-hour days, six days a week, every week of the year without vacation or sick days. In finance, banker hours, originally named for the 10 to 3 business day, fixed by banks from the 19th century through the mid-20th, later used to refer to generally to the, any light work, having given way to the ironically named banker 9 to 5, which begins at 9 a.m. on one day, but runs through 5 a.m. on the next. Elite managers were once organization men, cocooned by lifelong employment in a corporate hierarchy that rewarded seniority above performance. Today, the higher a person climbs on the org chart, the harder she is expected to work. 
Amazon's leadership principles call for managers to have relentlessly high standards and to deliver results. The company tells managers that when they hit the wall at work, the only solution is to climb it. And that's evil, man. That's evil. And it all comes from the pressure that we have to maximize profitability. Exploit, exploit, exploit. And if you can't wring any blood out of working class people anymore because they've hit their limit, you do it to middle class people. And then you do it to the, the run after that. It's no end. Until they're all robots, I guess. Or dead. I mean, that's the grim, that's the grim reality. It's all going to be the end of us. Capacity to bear these hours gracefully, or at least grimly, has become a criterion for meritocratic success. A top executive at a major firm interviewed by sociologist uh, Hosschild for her book, The Time Bind, observed aspiring managers who have demonstrated their skills and dedication face face a final elimination. Some people flame out, get weird because they work all the time. The people at the top are very smart, work like crazy, and don't flame out. They're still able to maintain a good mental set and keep their family life together. They win the race. I just made a grimace face. Um, but you know, no, see, see the overlap with the uh, mindfulness thing. It's because they were more mindful. They, were, they had a better mindset. A parallel policy agenda must reform work by favoring goods and services produced by workers who do not have elaborate training or fancy degrees. For example, the healthcare system should emphasize emphasize public health, preventative care, and other measures that can be overseen primarily by nurse practitioners rather than high-tech treatments that require specialists. The legal system should deploy legal technicians, not all of whom would need to have a JD to manage routine matters. So basically, deprofessionalize work. I like it. Because I've been on a anti-professionalism kick, but what kind of what kind of policy, like what kind of law do you pass that basically deprioritize, like deprofessionalizes? I mean, I, can't, I, I suppose it's naturally occurring. And just to observe, that, like, yeah, this is, this is a good development. So in finance, regulations that limit exotic financial engineering and favor small and regional banks can shift jobs. So basically, yeah, regulation of the labor market, extensive regulations. Now, I'm not so quite sure... Extensive regulations will work because in driving for profit, professionalization and maximizing your return, whatever, your your own personal income, people will find workarounds. They always do. It can't just be about regulating the labor market as it is. You have to start at the root, which is where does the money come from? How is it created? How is value extracted? What do we do with it afterwards? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, but this is a good, this is good, something something to keep in mind. You know, management should embrace practices that distribute control beyond the C-suite to empower everyone else in the firm. I don't even know what that means. Corner office suite, I guess. The main obstacle to overcoming meritocratic inequality is not technical, but it's political, like everything else. Today's conditions induce discontent and widespread pessimism verging on despair. In his book, Oligarchy, the political scientist Jeffrey Winters surveys eras in human history from the classical period to the 20th, documents what becomes of societies that concentrate income and wealth and narrow elite. In almost every instance, the dismantling of such inequality has been accompanied by societal collapse, such as military defeat in the Roman Empire or revolution, like in France and Russia. Nonetheless, 
there are grounds for hope. Now, of course, I don't consider revolution to be a bad thing. Now, of course, they're violent, undisciplined, chaotic. Okay. Liberals keep wanting to avoid this, but they seem to be really bad at it. Or they are really good at it in the fact that America has not had one yet, but we are the still the premier empire of the world. Though our military defeats seem to be stacking up, though they're not really quite a military defeat. I think maybe some skirmish with China and then they actually rebuff us. I think that might push us over the edge. We actually have to have a confrontation with with the rising multipolar world. I think that, that might be that might be it. But who who knows when that'll happen. We'll not put a date on it. Um, nonetheless, there are grounds for hope. History does present one clear case of an orderly recovery from con- concentrating equality, which would be the New Deal. Ah, yes, but then we had robust third parties in the militant uh, trade unions. I mean, if you looked at the labor, labor struggle, all the strikes and everything, it looked like apocalypse. It looked like the apocalypse to a capitalist. And that's why they had to go hard with the Red Scare right afterwards. An updated version of these arrangements remains available today. A renewed expansion of education and a renewed emphasis on middle-class jobs can reinforce each other. What reality is this writer living in? Sorry, I like his premise. I like his conclusions. Hate the policy. And that's what that's kind of what, when I started reading this, I'm like, look, they're really good at stating like certain problems and talking about them. They're really bad at prescription because uh, their, their theory on political science is so bad. Like, they're coming at this like, okay, so you're talking about, like, what policies would be nice. And then you look at what Congress is doing with the, like, with the major, the supposedly major infrastructure bill. It's not even fixing the lead in the pipes problem. It's not even able to do that. And you want to, like, regulate labor. Okay. An updated, okay, so rebuilding a democratic economic order will be difficult, but the benefits that economic democracy brings to everyone justify the effort. You know, I kind of wish Atlantic readers could actually, you know, politically organize, but all they do is just select Democrats, and Democrats ain't doing any of this. The violent collapse that will likely follow from doing nothing leaves us with no good alternative but the try. Well, I'm with him with that. Okay, I'm going to finish the show this edition anyway, with a similar thing, but it takes a different tack when it comes to revolutions. But um, the this is from the blog Dandelion Salad. And uh, written by Pete Dolak. And the title is, and it was published uh, this last summer, Changes in Consciousness and Belief Systems Don't Need Decades, Much Less Centuries to, to Change. So this is longer. I'm definitely going to skip certain part, uh, large parts of it. He basically does an overview of the major rev- revolutions of the modern age, meaning the French, most of the European ones. Talks about the French Revolution, then the revolution in, 19, uh, in 1848, then the Paris Commune, and then wraps up with the Russian one, but also just talks generally about 20th century. Oh, no, he talks about the Sandinistas, actually. Well, let's just go to his main points, his, uh, you know, his intro and his outro. A crucial argument for the incessantly promoted idea that capitalism will be with us for a long time to come is the idea of inertia and human understanding. And I come across this in all kinds of books, social science books that aren't from like a leftist lens or Marxist lens. Ideas are stubbornly persistent and can only be changed over long periods of time. 
Slow evolutionary change is the best we can hope for, and the prospects, even for that, are uncertain and fragile. And that's the kind of fetism I, uh, even with militant activists, I um, encounter at times. Even if the above were true, then there would be no revolutions in history. That is quite obviously not the case. Consciousness can change rapidly. It does so ex exceptionally and under rare circumstances during periods of social upheaval. Yes, not everyday occurrences, but they do happen. There are decades where nothing happens. There are weeks where decades happen, Lenin famously said. But we don't need to lean on Lenin. A survey of history need not be comprehensive to find examples of dramatic changes in consciousness, even if we exclude for purposes of this discussion national movements of liberation from colonialism, which generally didn't mean meaningfully change social relations. France alone offers us two examples, the French Revolution and the Paris Commune, that working people didn't obtain what they wanted, the bourgeoisie, middle-class people, owners, business people, were in a position to gain an upper hand due to material conditions, and that a monocle uh, restoration would later occur doesn't require us to deem the events in 1789 and 1793 a failure. The dramatic insertion into history of the popular masses is what we can center here, and it can't be argued there wasn't an overturning of a rotten establishment. Now, that's the thing to look at in, uh, in comparing to what I just read about the, you know, you, you just replaced, you know, in the 60s, uh, post-60s, we replaced one type of elite with a different type of elite with the improvement, quote-unquote improvement, being that they actually have to work really hard <laughs> to earn their place there. Work a little too hard, actually. But that means, like, it trickles down, then everyone else has to be harder, work harder to earn their keep, which is pretty much what capitalism requires, that we just have to keep creating not just more value, but exponentially more value. Automation or no automation. And then with automation and robots, we have to work even harder to earn our keep. We have to work harder than the robots. We all have to be John Henry. We all have to be John Henry, uh, who was both at, the, at one point a labor hero, representing, you know, smashing the machines and fighting automation and workers' rights, then um, reappropriated by Disney to be a hero in, by working himself to death. Because he did beat the machine, but he had to die to do so. Will we meet the same fate? Hell no, I say. So the conditions of peasants were endured until they weren't. Rebellions were hardly unknown across feudal Europe, but had tended to be isolated affairs. French peasants and laborers had been acquiescent to miserable conditions, or so it seemed. As discontent among social classes mounted, the first demonstrations broke out in 1787. Organization, or in the education that movements do provide, put people in motion. In only two years, the movement went from issuing petitions, asking for reform, to overthrowing the monarchy. There was also the Revolution of 1848 that went all across Europe. It was true that these would falter one after another because they weren't they were nationalist in, in scope, so they didn't really cross-pollinate, and, and so they were kind of left on their own. Fall one after another as traditional authorities, mostly monarchs and military, would reassert themselves. But these upheavals could never have occurred without peasants and pro workers ceasing to continue total deference to elites. Masses were in motion, but the ideals, although temporarily crushed, survived 
began to be implemented within the decades, you know, by the, the very elites that put them down. Uh, societies across Europe were rigid class dictatorships with the elites of their countries horrified. The very idea that common people might be given some say. Skipping a paragraph ahead. When implemented, these changes were not revolutionary. It is true, meaning actually instituting constitutions. As national elites found that they could accommodate such demands and not have their rule challenged. But millions previously resigned to bowing their heads and accepting their bitter lot learned to speak up to organize, to struggle, and to imagine what a better world could be brought into being. As Priscilla Robertson wrote in her marvelous account, Revolutions of 1848, Social History, most of what the men of 1848 fought for was brought about within a quarter century, and the men who accomplished it were most of them specific enemies of their movement. Which then leads to the Paris Commune. Get ahead to the end of that. But the very peacefulness was a sharp divergence from ordinary governing. Only a people who had rapidly gained new and radical understanding of how society might be organized could create such a government, whose ideas aren't extinguished when bloodily suppressed, but remain alive for the next generation. So I guess I should go back and describe the, what the commune, though, would be drowned in blood. We can readily see the difference between their vision and the ruthless violence that was used to suppress it. A National Guard commander freed captured French army officers in a spirit of comradeship, to the point where their top army commander was let go in exchange for a promise that he would be neutral, a promise he was, that he swiftly broke. The communards' magnanimity was repaid with a horrific bloodbath. Okay, that goes after the... But what, they, what did they do during the Paris Commune? Well, they enacted several progressive laws. They banned exploitative night work for bakers. They suspended the collection of debts incurred during the siege, separated church and state, provided free education to all children, Handling, handing over abandoned workshops to co-ops of workers to restart production, and they abolished conscription in the army. Commune officials were subject to instant recall by voters and were paid an average wage of a worker, something that's only joked about in American politics. Oh, con you know, Congress should only be paid the uh, you know, median wage of their state. They should have term limits. Can't even do term limits. Never, never mind recall. So there's no shortage of examples to be drawn from the 20th century. Start with the obvious one in Russia, where there was a sea of illiterate peasants yoked to land and held in bondage, backwards and so on. Agitation by organizers and social democratic parties had made some headway, exemplified in their revolt in 1905, but even that was cut off when R Russians accepted their country's participation in World War I, the same as the peoples in other countries. Yet three years later, all of Russia was in motion. Russians refused to accept any longer the brutality and backwardness forced on them. And so on, so on. And it was started with a women's strike. So this is starting in Petrograd. That they walked out on International Women's Day. And they walked to the nearby metal factory, and they told the men there to join them on strike. And then both groups went on to other factories, and then so on and so on. And then a general strike was underway, shouting anti-war and anti-monarchy slogans. Because it was in the middle of World War One, and it was bad, real bad. And then he goes on about the Sandinistas and what might have been. And he talks about uh, Chile. Changes in consciousness and belief systems don't need decades, much less centuries, to change. Such changes don't and won't happen without enormous organizing, which includes gaining the ability to disseminate material exposing and contradicting standard ideology 
and presenting alternatives that speak to people's lives and goals. Most importantly, conceivable ideas and concepts that lead to a better world. A better world will come about through the everyday work of organizing and campaigning, not through blueprints. Some of the bricks of today will never be used in building the institutions of tomorrow, but those bricks can be arranged differently. What is radical one day is everyday common sense another. And the time span between those two days is not necessarily distant. The idea that one family was granted the right to rule in perpetuity, the idea that a human being could own another human being, the idea that everyone was born to a particular class and could never believe it, have passed into history. Why shouldn't the idea that the only a minuscule number of people have the ability to manage enterprises and should therefore be paid hundreds of times more than those who work and produce the profits? The idea that capitalism doesn't work for most people, that a better world is possible, has animated millions, and some of those millions have tried to put those ideas into practice. The ability to see through capitalist propaganda rose quickly. The peoples mentioned throughout this article didn't need centuries. Popular opinion changed dramatically and rapidly. That shifts in mass consciousness with revolutionary potential have take, rarely taken place in the world's advanced capitalist countries does not mean they can't happen in the future. What forms any such uprisings might take can't be known and could take different forms than previously seen. Repressive rule, whether through monarchs, armed forces, or economics, is not forever. Nothing of human creation is. Capitalism isn't an exception and will be history when enough people decide to make it so. Organize. So that was um, little bits of a much longer article from Dandelion Salad. I don't think I've had a salad of dandelion greens, but uh, or maybe I have. I know there's dandelion wine. I don't know if I had it or not. But you can see that as a good positive or optimistic or so on wrap-up. But maybe uh, it is an optimistic, right? Because he's still kind of outlining that we need major crisis. The American empire has to be in a state that that everyone's consciousness about America, the American dream that the uh, the, uh, the Atlantic writer was talking about. Like, we can still save the American dream, guys. We just need to completely overhaul labor laws and regulations uh, to basically deprofessionalize the workforce. Okay. <laughs> good luck with that. Not Good luck with doing that without a revolution. Okay, that's all I have to say. I think I can wrap up. I have a few more minutes. Just read a paragraph or two. Opinion piece from uh, hyper hyperallergenic, which is why should we should abolish museums? <laughs> that is that we should remake and reimagine them. Today is a good day for museums to die, says a doctor Porcia Moore, who is a professor and museum scholar. Some claim that the museum is sick, and that it is a body that requires healing and care in order to do its job, and that the violence we witness in the museum are symptoms of this illness. But the museum is not sick. It is a healthy body pursuing a sick goal, a goal of white, heteropatriarchal supremacy. I should mention hyperallergenic is one of those very, very much like woke culture kind of outfits. So it's definitely talking like one. But, you know, I don't think they mention capitalism much, but definitely the rest of the, you know, social oppressions, which are all represented in museum culture, especially the very large, rich institutions that have the wealthy donors filled with looted uh, artifacts <laughs> that will they will not return. <laughs> the new museum requires an ethical reorientation from our old ways of thinking. 
It is a divestment from our conservationist and capitalist ideology and a centering of voices previously silenced by the colonial project. People and art deserve a better form of art stewardship. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna end there actually. Uh, just to, just just to whet your appetite, I'll link it uh, in my sources if you want to hear more about why the museum should be abolished or what could be done differently. I, I, I'll just to point out that I visited a museum recently that was kind of newly designed uh, in Bar Harbor, Maine, and it was I think very much in line with uh, what uh, what this article is talking about. Otherwise, let me just uh, wrap up uh, by saying by thanking you profusely for listening to me. Listening is a very important skill, almost as important as talking and being able to talk well. So I plan to listen to any constructive feedback. If you have any ideas for the show or stories that you know people don't actually share with me, but uh, I, I was shared a piece of music, which I could actually, I don't know if I have it on this laptop. But this program has made, uh, was made as part of an independent community radio station, so please support us materially. A donation or membership to WCAALP, which can be found at grandarts.org. Oh, please just share the share the show with others. Um, we're on social media, and our an archive of the show is at uh, three lefts www or just Google search the three lefts show. So of course, just practice the ideas or uh, just give a give a good think about what you've been listening to. Uh, ruminate, process, take a breather. So uh, otherwise. Be well, everybody.